God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is alive and active, or that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, that you have a purpose for your word here this morning to pierce our hearts today. God, we thank you for this opportunity just to sit under its authority, to allow it to shape us, to show us things about Jesus that we may not have seen before. God, we thank you for other churches throughout uh, the area and even around the world that are gathering, whether on this morning or tonight or tomorrow night. God, we thank you for just the unique opportunity that you've given the church to be able to proclaim the beauty of Jesus around Christmas. God, we do pray for even specifically churches here in Fishers who will be proclaiming Jesus. Lord, for those who don't know you, oh God, we pray that people would get saved this week. People that um, are far from you would be drawn near to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, growing up at the uh, church that I attended as a boy, there was a man at our church uh, who always passed out lollipops in between the services in the North X uh, lobby area. He always had a bag of candy on him, so we nicknamed him the Candy Man. And uh, always was passing out suckers, and I loved the Candyman. I always enjoyed looking forward to, to seeing him, to, to going to church. I was definitely that kid who would come to him, grab a sucker, and go to the bathroom, and then come back and grab more, and then give that extra sucker to this girl I had a crush on. And uh, that was probably the beginning of, of a, a bad journey for me. Uh, but anyways, I loved the Candyman. During the Christmas time, he'd pass out free candy canes, and honestly, to this day, whenever I have a candy cane, I think of the Candyman. I remember a few years ago, I asked my parents about the Candyman, just who he was, why he did what he did, uh, was he allowed to do what he did? You know, that probably wouldn't be uh, acceptable in today's world. Uh, but my parents said that the Candyman would pass out candy to kids because he loved candy, he loved kids, and he loved church, but he wanted kids to associate church with joy. He wanted kids to, to look forward to coming to church because, you know, they would receive candy and, in hopes that they'd keep coming back and that they would hear about Jesus and, and believe in Jesus. And that was definitely true for me. I looked forward to coming to church, looked forward to getting that candy, but eventually God wooed me to himself and uh, saved me and, and converted my dark heart and transferred me into the kingdom uh, of his son. I share that with you this morning um, because number one, we need a candy man in our church. And so if you're looking for a way to serve and to step up, we definitely need that in our church. Uh, but, but seriously, the, the other reason why I share that with you is because I think the author of John, and we've been traveling through John for several months here, I think the author of John is trying to do something similar. I think what John is, is doing with the scriptures is he's wanting us to associate the Bible with joy. He's wanting us not just to accumulate knowledge and information and, uh, and different facts about the Bible or about Jesus, but John, and through the Spirit of God, is after your joy. That he wants us to, to hold up Christ in such a way that we would look at Jesus and be satisfied with Jesus and keep coming back to the Scriptures. And one way that he's doing that is he is exalting Jesus. He's holding up Jesus so highly, uh, kind of like what you do with a diamond in the light. You hold up a diamond in the light and you can see all of its brilliance and beauty through different facets and different angles. He's doing that with Jesus all throughout this gospel. He's showing us these different angles of who Christ is. He's going to hold up his teachings. He's going to hold up his miracles. He's going to hold up these unique conversations 
that he has with these different individuals, not just to accumulate head knowledge, but he wants to stir your desires and your affections for Christ to increase your joy. Okay, keep that in mind as we're traveling through the gospel of John. And remember the purpose of of the gospel. He states it for us in chapter 20. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He doesn't say that you may have facts or head knowledge, but life in his name. He'll go on to say that he's come to give life and life to the fullest, that Jesus is after your joy. He even says in chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Look, that is our great aim as we're worshiping our way through this gospel very slowly, that he's after our joy. So we want to see the glory of Christ. We want to believe in his name and have life and joy in Jesus. And our passage is going to do that here this morning. Well, as we close out uh, chapter 3 of John, I believe our author is going to be using similar themes uh, that we've already seen in these first couple chapters. And in particular, he's going to be picking up themes that we saw in his conversation with Nicodemus, and specifically in verses uh, 11 through 13. But the question that John is trying to answer as he closes out this chapter is, is it okay that people are going to Jesus more than the people that are going to John the Baptist. If you remember that, uh, that, that, that was the reality in the last passage last week that we looked at. More people are starting to go to Jesus. And so John is trying to answer the question, is that okay? And even in verse 30, that uh, John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. John is answering the question, why is that the case? Why should Jesus increase and we decrease? Well, in short, what he's going to say here in these last couple of verses is Jesus should become greater because Jesus is infinitely different and better than us. And he's going to show us that in three ways throughout these last couple of verses. So three ways that Jesus is infinitely better and infinitely different than us. Here's number one. John shows us the origin of Jesus is infinitely different than our origin. Where Jesus comes from is so different than where you and I come from. Look at verse 31. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, in that first verse there alone, John uses the Greek preposition where we translate of or from four different times. John's trying to show us the the incredible value of where Jesus comes from. Furthermore, when you jump down to verse 34, he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So in three different ways, John tells us that Jesus is from heaven. The beginning of verse 31, he says he's from above. At the end of 31, he says he's from heaven. And in verse 34, it says that God sent Jesus. And John has already stated this in a different way. Remember the very first verse in chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we know that. We know that Jesus comes from heaven. But I just want to remind us of the implications of Jesus' origin. That John is saying that he's not only from above, 
but he rules over all, that Jesus is above all. So John is explaining that Jesus' origin determines his authority, that because he's from heaven, he rules over every square inch of the universe. Okay, so there's a, there's a wonder to verse 31. There, there, there's something behind verse 31 that should create an astonishment about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He's not only from heaven, he not only rules over all, but Jesus didn't stay in heaven. Okay, that, that's the wonder of verse 31, that the one who is omnipotent, the one who is infinite, the one who is the creator of the universe, didn't stay up in heaven, but he came down and he drew near to us. Look, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what we celebrate, the origin of Jesus, but also the authority of of Jesus. That's what we recognize, that's what we worship, and that's what we yet again surrender to. Let's not miss that, that fact or that reality. As we gather with families and, and friends this week, and we celebrate the baby in the manger, let's be reminded that that's the same Jesus who is on his throne in heaven, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has all authority, all power in his hand. And so just to remind you, if you're Look, if you're going through a season right now where it's hard, it's difficult, just want to remind you about the authority of Jesus because he's from heaven, that he's got authority to fix that broken marriage, that he has authority to, to lift the stress and the pressure off whatever's going on at work, that he has the authority to, to speak grace, to bring grace into a difficult season or a difficult trial. Why? Because he is from heaven. Remember what the wise men do in Matthew chapter 2 when they see baby Jesus. They they worship this baby. And verse 10 of chapter 2 of Matthew says, When they saw the star, the, the wise men, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Why would they worship a baby? It's because the wise men recognized the authority behind the origin of this baby Jesus, that this is a king and demands our surrender to him. Now, John shows the origin of Jesus by not just telling us that he's from heaven, but also he shows us that we are from the earth, that we do not come from heaven. So he's showing us the the infinite difference between Jesus and us. He's basically saying that we have limitations that we have flaws, that we have struggles, that we have sin, that there is a a categorical difference between Jesus and us. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 15. He explains this beautifully. He says this, he says, The first man was from the earth, talking about Adam, a man of dust. The second man, talking about Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, the only thing I want to take from that passage is that there is a difference between Jesus and with us. That for us who are in Adam, who are born of the dust, who are from the earth, we speak in earthly ways. We have limitations. We have a sinful condition that we are unable to save ourselves, Jesus is different. Jesus is infinitely different because he is from heaven. 
even in chapter 8 of John, which we will eventually get to, uh, Jesus tells the Jews this. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And Jesus will later on say that he has actually conquered the world. And so this is really to kind of expose our gaps, to expose our shortcomings, to expose our need, and to show us that the one who is from heaven is the only one qualified to meet our greatest need. This leads us to the second thing that I want to point out. Another way that Jesus is infinitely different than you and me is that the essence of Jesus is different. That what Jesus is full of is infinitely different. Not only is he from God, but he is full of God. Look at verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I think John explains what Jesus is full of, the essence of Jesus, in a very brilliant and beautiful way. At the end of verses 34 and 35, those verbs are in the present tense. They are active. And so we can read them like this, that the Father is always giving the Son the Spirit without measure, and the Father is always loving the Son, that he's doing this without end. And so God gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. Okay, what this means is that Jesus receives and experiences the Spirit in an infinitely different way than what you and I receive and experience the Spirit, that Jesus experiences it without measure, completely and infinitely. And so God gives Jesus the Spirit, meaning that as much as there is of the Spirit, Jesus has that as many ways as Jesus can have him, he has him in all of those ways. As fully as the Spirit can be known and can be enjoyed, Jesus enjoys and knows the Spirit in all of those ways. Okay? So if your head just exploded, it's okay. What, what that means is that the essence of Jesus, what Jesus is full of, is the Spirit of God completely and infinitely. That Jesus is full of of the divine. He is God. Now this is to show that Jesus must be made greater. This is John's argument because of verse 30 that Jesus must increase because he is infinitely different than you or I. He's different than the prophets. The prophets had the spirit but was in measure. Jesus has the spirit completely and has always had it full of his essence. So John shows us that what Jesus is full of, what he's made of, not only with the Spirit, but also in verse 35, what the Father does with Jesus. He loves the Son by giving him all things. Now, why would the Father give the Son all things if the Son wasn't made up of the same essence as God the Father? Let me unpack that by showing you some things that the Father has given the Son, Jesus. Just in John chapter 5, verse 22, the Father has given Jesus the responsibility to judge the whole world. In chapter 5, verse 26, the Father has given Jesus to have life in himself. In chapter 6, verse 37, the Father has given Jesus all believers to be his possession. Chapter 17, the Father has given Jesus authority over all people. He's given Jesus the, the name and the glory of God. 
This is a way that John is showing us what Jesus is full of because the Father entrusts Jesus with all of those things and more because Jesus is full of the essence and the same essence as God. Let me throw in a a Luke 1 reference because it's Christmas time. It says, But the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Jesus is full of the same essence. Now, why is this good news? Why, why am I highlighting what Jesus is full of? Well, this is good news because Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to address our deepest need and our greatest issue, which is our sin problem. That we all have this sin problem where we've sinned against an eternally existent and holy God, which means all of us deserve a punishment for all of eternity. Now, that's bad news. That, that is a problem that none of us can solve. Our good works can't address that. Our church attendance can't address that. Our niceness or our generosity can't address our greatest need. The only one that can solve and address that need is an eternally existent, perfectly blameless being who is Jesus. A Jesus who is full of the essence of God, who is God, who is the eternal being, can address our problem against a holy and existent God. And Jesus did that by coming in the form of a baby, growing up, dying on the cross for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, taking away our penalty, taking away our sin, taking away our greatest issue, and dying in the place of sinners. It's only Jesus can solve our problem. So as we celebrate Jesus this week, as we highlight Jesus coming down, let's continue that worship that he came down. He left the comforts of heaven, but he also got up on a cross to take away our sin issue. That for all who believe, that all, all who believe, all who put their faith in Jesus might be saved. Jesus is infinitely different. Jesus is infinitely better. The last thing I want to point out for us this morning, not only where Jesus comes from, not only what Jesus is full of, but also what Jesus did. Look at the work of Jesus here. And in particular, I want to highlight the words of Jesus. Okay, Jesus did all kinds of amazing works, and we'll get to that throughout this gospel. But I want to focus in on what John shows us here in verses 32 and 34. That what he says here in verse 32 is that Jesus came to bear witness to what he has seen. And then verse 34, it says that God has sent Jesus to utter words. Okay, so God, God sent Jesus with a message to proclaim that is remarkably different than the world around us and the message that we hear from the culture around us. So John is telling us that when Jesus speaks about God, it is different than how you and I speak about God. See, when we talk about God, we are fully dependent on what Jesus tells us about God and what he is like and and who he is. But when Jesus speaks about God, he has a different kind of authority. Why? Because he's from heaven. He's full of the Spirit without measure. That he's full of the essence of God. So it carries a different weight. 
So when Jesus speaks, he speaks the very words of God. When you hear Jesus, you are hearing from God. Like This is significant because the, there's no more of this, um, this guessing game of, of what is God saying? What, what does God think of us? What, what does God want? No, all of that was answered in the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. And look, his message is remarkably different than the message that we hear all around us. The message that we hear all around us is to, to find yourself, to believe in yourself, to, to trust in yourself, to, to look within, right? That's so different than the message of Jesus. Even, even the message during this time, during Christmas time, what culture's trying to maybe convince us of is to, is to chase that fuzzy and warm feeling, to find your joy in, in this experience of, of Christmas that's maybe apart from Jesus being the ruler and the king and the savior of the world. Jesus' message is different. Now, let me just highlight a couple things that Jesus said, what Jesus uttered through the book of John. This is just a couple examples. John 16, Jesus says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. John 8, Jesus says, If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 16, 22, Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. John 19, 30, as Jesus is on the cross with his arms stretched wide, as he's dying in the place of sinners, says these three words, it is finished. Look, these are just some of the words of Jesus only in the gospel of John. But look, Jesus really said these things. And Jesus said these things, they're meant for us to do something with them. Not just to read them, but to believe them and to press them down deeply into our souls so that we're actually changed by them. So we actually live them out. They actually have an impact on how we go about our days. Why? Because Jesus is from heaven. He's full of God. He is God. And these words have an authority that doesn't compare with the rest of the world. Like, if that's true, then it begs the question, what do you do with the word of God in your life? What do you do with, with the words of Jesus on a day-in and day-out basis? You might be, well, Chris, I, I read them. Okay, that's good, but what do you do after you read them? Well, what do you mean? Well, yeah, what do you do after you read them and you try to discern the meaning? Do, do you allow the words of Jesus to speak to you and to change you? Or do you read them and just kind of move on with your day? And maybe later on ask, hey, what did you read this morning? You may not be able, be able to remember. Look, what do you do with the words of Jesus? Let me give you an example. One of these verses I just read, John 16. Jesus says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. Okay, 
What do you do with that verse? You read it. You understand it. You think, okay, there's a joy that Jesus provides if we see Jesus. Okay, that, that's what he's saying here, okay? So as you allow the word of God to change you, to speak into you, you allow the spirit of God to say, where is your joy found? Is your joy found in Christ? Maybe you're interacting with the scriptures now. You're thinking, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have joy. Well, why? Well, because I'm, I'm worried about this thing or I'm concerned about that. Okay, now the, the word of God starts to speak to you. The word of God says, wait, wait, Jesus says, that no one will take your joy from you. So why are you looking and placing your hope in fixing this situation or fixing that situation that's causing worry and anxiety? Look to Jesus. Look to where your joy is found. See, the Word of God speaks to us and changes us and confronts us with the question, which message are you listening to? What words are you believing? Are you believing the words of Christ or are you believing in the circumstances and the message of our culture all around us? See, there's an interaction that has to take place between your heart, the Spirit of God, and the words of God because there is authority in the words of Jesus. And I just wonder if some of us open up the Bible and just kind of view it as a checklist as something just to do and to kind of move on. And we, and we read it so we feel better about ourselves, but we don't linger in an unhurried way, asking questions about the text, allowing it to convict us, to stir us, and to bring us into a new way of living where Jesus says, I have given you life and life to the fullest if you keep your eyes on me. Look, what do you do? the words of Jesus. Just to go back to my introduction, John is not after more knowledge. He's not after filling your mind with information and facts. He's after your joy. He wants your lives to be transformed because of where Jesus comes from, because of what Jesus is full of, and because of Jesus' words. And before we close, I, I want to go back to verse 35 just for a moment. There's a phrase that we that we skipped over, that I just want to close with this last thought, perhaps as a way to prepare us for, uh, for tomorrow evening. You go back to verse 35. You read that phrase there, the Father loves the Son. What a beautiful phrase there. I, I really believe we're meant to read that phrase and to recall chapter 3, verse 16. You know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I think we are supposed to read verse 35 and recall this love that God has for the world. And so we see that the Father loves the Son and loves the world. And verse 35 is not meant to take away from the passage of John 3.16. I think it's meant to heighten our wonder of God's love and the breadth and the depth and the length of God's love for us. In other words, if God gave up his only Son, whom he loves, who he has an eternal, infinite love for the Son, Jesus Christ. If he gave up Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of the world, then how much must he love you? How much must his heart burst for joy and love for you if he willingly gave up Jesus? Look, during the Christmas season, that, that reality should stun us. 
that God demonstrated his great love for us by sending Jesus from heaven in the form of a baby to grow up and die on the cross for our sins. And I think we're supposed to connect all of this, that as God the Father gives the Son the immeasurable gift of the Spirit, so God the Father gives the world, gives us the immeasurable gift of his Son. God loves you. He loves the messy parts of your life. He loves the unlovable parts of your life. He loves you when you are uh, sinning, when you are far from him, when you have nothing to offer. God loves you. He pursues you. And he demonstrated that by sending Jesus when we were his enemies. I love how Anne Voskamp puts this. She says that, So God throws open the door of this world and enters as a baby, as the most vulnerable imaginable. Why? Because he wants unimaginable intimacy with you. What religion ever had a God that wanted such intimacy with us that he came with such vulnerability to us? What God ever came so tender we could touch him, so fragile that we could break him, so vulnerable that his bare beating heart could be hurt, only the one who loves you to death. Jesus came to die for our sins. Let me close by reading out verse 36 here. I think John is using verse 36 to remind us we've got to do something with Jesus He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Look, whoever believes in Jesus, you have eternal life. If you reject him, wrath of God remains on you. Those are your two choices. Every one of us has a decision to make to do something with Jesus. It goes back to the Christmas story. Even the first couple of characters in in the Gospels had to do something and did something with Jesus. Remember Herod? Herod, what he did with Jesus, he was filled with anger and jealousy, wanted to kill Jesus. Mary was filled with wonder towards Jesus. The angels were rejoicing towards Jesus. The shepherds were worshiping Jesus. The wise men were sacrificing and giving gifts for Jesus. Every person that encounters Jesus has to do something with Jesus. And look, on this Christmas season, you and I have the same opportunity to do something with Jesus, to believe in him or to reject him. One leads to eternal life, and one leads to eternal separation from him forever. Look, for those who have not made that decision, look, this is your moment to go all in for Jesus, to believe in Jesus because of what he's accomplished for you on the cross. What better timing to do that during the Christmas season if you haven't already, to know that Jesus loves you, he's pursued you, he's paid it all on the cross, to bend your knee to King Jesus during this Christmas season. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Christ. God, we thank you for the Christmas season that wows us and stuns us like seeing a beautiful diamond on display. We see the brilliance of Jesus who gave up the comforts of heaven to come to live as a servant and to die on the cross for us sinners. God, we thank you that Jesus holds the keys of life, eternal life for all who believe. Got to pray for those who are here, who maybe are here at church for different reasons, different motivations. God, those who have not placed their faith upon you, Jesus, God, I pray that today would be the day 
that they would say, yes, Jesus, I accept your free gift of eternal life. I believe in you. God, let today be the day we pray in Jesus' beautiful and powerful name.